All right, I'm going to read you guys a psalm, and uh, we'll make it the 100th psalm, and then we'll get into our sermon. Psalm 100, this is a psalm of thanksgiving. Everybody, everybody, make a shout, joyful shout to the Lord, all you lambs. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. All right, here we go. Our sermon text for today is Ruth 1, 1 through 5. And uh, it begins with these words. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malone and Kilion also died, so that the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Now we're going to talk about Ruth for a while, and I want to know you to know before I actually get into my sermon, uh, you know, words that... Um, I'm not going to give you any of the Christological significance at this point. It's going to be mostly cultural and historical. And the reason why is because this is one story. And until you get to the end of it, you can't really say, well, this means this and this means this. So the last sermon will give you a lot more of that um, prophetic and culture, I'm sorry, uh, pictorial information than I will during these sermons. But I hope that you enjoyed this book as beautiful as it is and how wonderful it is. The book of Genesis is behind us. And Exodus is the next logical place to continue our journey. But but before we go there, we're going to take a short trip through the book of Ruth. If we were to follow the same time frame as the book of Genesis for the next six books before Ruth, it would be many, many years before we actually got there. And unlike the New Testament and the prophets and the books of wisdom, which we have frequently cited as we have been going through the book of Genesis, our travels through the pages of the Bible don't naturally reach out for quotes from books like Ruth. Ruth is only four chapters long, and yet it is almost completely overlooked by Christians, as if it were an unimportant story which has no relevance to anything we would care about in our daily walk. And yet it is a book which drips, it literally drips with Christological significance, and it is filled with amazing beauty and wonder. If one were to sit down and to read it from beginning to end, it would take no more than about 20 minutes. And yet, how many of us have taken time to do so even once? Well, we're going to be in the book of Ruth for a bit more than 20 minutes, but I don't think you're going to find any of it tedious or boring. Instead, you're going to find it a delight to your senses and a marvelous story of love and grace, both from a human perspective and from the perspective of our Heavenly Father. Now, Ruth is an insert story, very similar to that of Judah and Tamar, which is found in Genesis 38. There is a main narrative which the uh, Bible is following along with, but there are at times stories which occur during the main narrative which are selected and which are highlighted. And as we're going to see in the last chapter of Ruth, there is a direct link between the insert story about Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38 and that of the book of Ruth. 
And interestingly, Ruth was a story that was used by Benjamin Franklin to open up the wonders of the Bible to the French aristocracy. When he was serving in the French court as ambassador to these United States, he was a frequenter of what was known as the Infidels Club. And while he was there at one time, he heard some of the aristocrats there demeaning the Bible, as the pompous often do. And they even do it today, and probably more so today. They noted that it was unworthy of their time or their attention, and that it lacked any style or relevance. And Franklin knew this to be exactly the opposite of the truth, and so he played a little bit of a trick on them. He had the... Uh, they had that, a habit there at the Infidels Club of bringing in and reading stories that were entertaining. And what they would do is then they would evaluate them after the reader was finished in order to either compliment the reader or to critique the story in one way or another. Franklin went to the book of Ruth and he wrote it out longhand and he changed the proper names to French names. And there in the Infidels Club, he read his cunningly altered manuscript to his pompously elite associates, who are the great minds of France. When he finished, they were utterly enchanted with what they had heard. They loved its elegance and they loved its style. It was straightforward and simple. And their exclamation was in French, charmant, charming. And their question, but where did you find this gem of literature, Monsieur Franklin? His answer certainly wasn't what their intellectual and arrogant minds would have expected. He said it comes from that book, which you so despise, La Sainte Bible. Certainly, there were those who were put in their place because of this one portion of the greatest piece of literature ever written in human history. And yet, the arrogance and the pathetically demeaning attitude is still found today, certainly in greater abundance than it was at Benjamin's, uh, the time of Benjamin's ambassadorship to France. The world of scholars and highbrow professors and godless politicians continues to put down and belittle the book that they could never fully grasp or mentally assimilate. And so from our text, our uh, text verse today will be from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. When I applied my heart to wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, even though one uh, sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a ma wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians that the Lord will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. He certainly did it through Benjamin Franklin at the Infidels Club. And he does it to us in our daily lives as well. We make plans for the contingencies that arise and we feel sure that the choices that we make are going to turn out in a particular way. And yet, we often find that things don't turn out as we'd wished. The things we had hoped for or, or expected are forgotten and they're even regretted. This is how it's going to appear to a lady named Naomi in today's verses. But someday she's going to look back on the tragedies described in these few lines and realize that God was with her there all along. And the same is true with each one of us. We lose a job, a family member dies, there is sadness and there is heartache heaped up in little pockets of time in our lives and we lose heart. And yet, when we get through them, we can turn around and we can look back and we can see how the good place that we have come to needed each one of those difficulties in order for us to arrive at the location that we are at. This is a constant theme of the Bible. We think things are out of control and God is right there tending to them all along anyway. Job is used as the Bible's premier example of patience and fortitude in times of grief and sadness and loss. But close on his heels is a lady named Naomi. Her reaction at the beginning of her trials is different from that of Job. 
But by the time the story is complete, she will, like Job, find herself in a wonderfully, wonderfully satisfied place. When times get tough for us, we can go to stories just like this one right here, even stories which are only four chapters long, and we can be reassured that God really is in control and that he is working out our lives for a marvelous end. They are stories of hope. They are stories of promise. They are stories which reveal the heart of God in the person of Jesus Christ, and they are stories which are found in his superior word. So let's go to that great and magnificent book now, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is famine in the land, which is verses one and two. Verse one begins with these words. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. In the Hebrew, the book opens with these words in Hebrew. Vehi bime shefot hashuftim. And came to pass in the days when judged the judges. A book beginning with the word and might seem a little bit remarkable to us. It is as if we read the Bible and we come to this particular book and find it's merely a continuation of the same story that we've been reading. And for all intents and purposes, it is. God is revealing to us wonders, unfolding them in a logical sequence which may or may not be chronological, but they fit in a fashion which is as orderly as if they were chronological. This same word and begins the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Ezekiel, Esther, and Ezra. Beginning this way is certainly intended to show us an unraveling of a thought process which had already began elsewhere. The time when the judges ruled begins with the time of a person named Othniel, who became the judge after Joshua died. His time of judging began in um, uh, Judges 3 verse 7, and it goes all the way until they Uh, time of Samuel, who was the last judge of Israel. The time of the kings replaced the time of the judges when Samuel anointed Saul to be the first king. And that's recorded in 1 Samuel 10, verse 1. Let me read that to you. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? That's the end of the time of the judges. Knowing that the author of Ruth said that these things came to pass in the days when the judges ruled tells us that it was written after that time. In the last chapter of Ruth, it's going to mention King David. And so we know that it was written either during or after his life as well. And it's unsure who wrote the book. Jewish tradition says that Samuel wrote it. But whether it was him or whether it was someone else, they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and thus the majestic and beautiful story is given to ultimately show us the person and work of Jesus Christ. Of this, there can be absolutely no doubt. There will be specific names of people and places which are selected purposefully, and they are done so to reveal hidden treasures of God's redemptive plans. As we continue through the book, every single detail is going to be carefully sifted through in order to reveal him. Finally, before we go on to understand that word and at the beginning of Ruth, it's necessary to understand what the situation of Israel was during the time of the judges. The theme of the book of Judges can be pretty much summed up in the following words, which are the very last words of that book. Here's what it says in Judges chapter 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This phrase, or a portion of it, is repeated four times in the book. It shows that despite being under a theocracy, 
there was no true union among the people and there was often more of anarchy than obedience to God. However, God promised under the law blessing and fruitfulness when the people were obedient and the opposite when they weren't. So for a time in this story, there is a lack of fruitfulness in the land and thus it is a time of disobedience within Israel. The lack is noted in the continuation of verse 1 that there was a famine in the land. This part of the verse in Hebrew is actually very similar to the previous part. It says, Vehi ra'av ba'aretz, and came to pass a famine in the land. The entire thought sh so far shows God's hand is written all over it. It literally says, and came to pass in the days when judged the judges, and came to pass a famine in the land. This is not an unnecessary Hebrew lesson, but it is to show us that both the timing and the circumstance are noted for us to consider. Famines are directed by God. They're used by him throughout biblical history to affect his will in the unfolding story of the world. Famines come about in a lot of ways, but none of them are unknown or undirected by him. Sometimes they come about by unfavorable weather conditions and the lack of rain. Some come about by civil war within a land where a nation fights against itself. And other times it's by wars waged by foreigners who come in and destroy the land and a famine occurs. From the time of Abraham all the way down to Joseph, the patriarchs were all affected by famine in ways which show the realization of God's purposes. Through these famines, patterns are seen which involve the repetition of specific dates and other occurrences. And in those famines, specific people and places are named which seem otherwise unimportant and yet each reveals something to do with the work of Jesus Christ. No word is ever wasted in the Bible. Each has purpose. In this verse it says, in the land. By not specifying the country where the famine is occurring, it supposes that the writer is writing from Israel and that we are joining him there in this narrative as it goes on. And even though this happens during the time of the judges, nothing more precise is specified than that it is during a time of famine. Many suggestions have been made. Scholars love to say what was during the time of this judge or that judge. They can't know. None of it can be certain. Only by looking at the genealogy of David can we guess the approximate time, but even that is mere guesswork and supposition because the ages of the ancestors during this period are not given. Verse 1 continues, And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah. The Hebrew here says, Ish, And went man. The word certain here is put in by the translators as a way of further singling him out. Modern translators tend to leave out this word certain. This man was from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. The reason for including the name Judah is because there is another Bethlehem in Israel mentioned in the land of Zebulun. That's recorded in Joshua 19, verse 15. This then is that same Bethlehem, which is where Jesus would be born some 1,100 or 1,200 years later. Judah is the main tribe of Israel, and it is also the tribe from which Jesus descended. So the account is ensuring already that we look for Jesus and that no error is made in assuming a different Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem means house of bread and Judah means praise. Verse one continues, went to dwell in the country of Moab. To dwell here, the word to dwell means to sojourn rather than to live permanently. It was the intent to move to Moab in order to be free from the famine, not to make a permanent new home. It is to the country of Moab that they went, but the word in Hebrew for country is the field of Moab. 
This is a term which is used with reference to a foreign country, not where the speaker or the writer is. Again, it's showing us in several ways that Canaan is the point from which the author is intending, and he is including us in this narrative as he writes it. The name Moab comes from two words. The first is me, which means who, and the second is av, which means daddy. In modern uh, language, we might call him who's your daddy. The answer comes from the story of Lot and his two daughters. Through his oldest daughter, he had a son, and he was named Moab because he came from her father. Verse 1 continues. And he and his wife and his two sons. Not only did the man go, but he headed out with his family. What is important to remember here is that this is a real story of real people and things that really happened to them. The story could simply have been not included in the Bible, but it is. And so it is there for a reason. We are to open our eyes and we're to pay attention because a zillion people have been in famines throughout history and some of them were Israelites. And lots of people have moved during famines. We've seen that in the news just in the past few days, including many Israelites. And yet the Bible selected this family and these details for a specific reason. This book is so important that it's uh, one of the five what is known as Megillah scrolls, which are read each year during feast days by observant Jews. Those five scrolls and the times that they are read aloud include the Song of Songs at Passover, Ruth at Shavuot or Pentecost, Lamentations on the ninth day of the month of Av, which is a very disastrous day in the history of Israel, Ecclesiastes is read during the Feast of Tabernacles, and Esther is read during the Feast of Purim. The stories are read, and yet eyes remain closed, and hearts remain unopened. But Jesus is there if they will just but look and believe. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I from your presence flee? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, even there your hand is upon me. If I take the wings of the morning to the coastland and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you shall lead me with your hand, and your right hand shall have hold of me. Wherever your people go, you are attentive to their every need. Surely we can trust that this is so. You are ever faithful in your care. Amen and indeed. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name Elimelech can have a couple different meanings. I want to break it down for you. El means God. Melech means king. Okay, but there's this I in the middle of El and Melech. Okay, if the I in the middle is possessive, then it would mean my God is king. And you can think of Jesus on the cross when he cited the psalm and said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, Eli, that I is possessive. All right, this then would affirm that he lived in the time of the judges, which was when Israel was a theocracy. God literally being king of Israel during this time. The I can also belong to king instead of God. And if so, then it is the third person statement that God is king. In the end, the conclusion is the same. God is Israel's king. There is one more possibility for the I, and I want to give it to you so you know what is not correct. This would be to translate it as God of the king. But at this time, there were no kings, and so that does not fit. It's either my God is king or God is king. The result is the same. It's the time of the theocracy. It's an important thing to remember as we go through this story. Verse 2 continues, the name of his wife was Naomi. Naomi is translated by most scholars as beautiful, sweet, pleasant, lovely, something like that. Okay? Some people take the I at the end of her name in the same way as the I on L 
for Eli, and they make it possessive. And if so, then it would be my sweetness or my pleasantness or my loveliness. However, the I also may be, and it is, as we'll see later, a reference to the Lord, Jehovah, that Yod being the first letter of the name of Jehovah. In this case, her name would mean pleasantness of the Lord. This translation is most likely based on something she herself is going to say in verse 20. Verse 2 continues, And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. And the names of the two sons are given. Malone is mentioned first, and so he is assumed to be the older of the two. But in chapter 4, he's named second. Okay, The names being reversed then have meaning in the story. Malone, the younger, will be the husband of Ruth. He is noted first here apart from birth order because Ruth is the principal in the story. Their names reflect a sad state of affairs anticipated by the story itself. Malone literally means man of weakness or sickly, you know, sick person. Kilion means wasting away. Now, why a parent would choose names like this is unknown, but it could go to their appearance at birth and their health. You know, they could have been sick babies. Or it could be the thoughts of a father who is aware of the fallen state of man and the useless nature of life under the sun. Either way, their lives will match their names, and they are in turn a picture of the pleasant things that the Lord gives us to enjoy during this life. They are weak, they are infirm, they are wasting away, and they are dying. Only the eternal things that he offers are of any true value. We may cherish a banana or a fig, as we will after the service today, or maybe a beautiful sunrise. We may long for the cool days of autumn or for the sunny days of spring. But as soon as those things come, they pass away. It seems that this was on the mind of Elimelech when he married and had his children with his wife, whose name is Pleasantness of the Lord. She would fade, as would the children who would issue from her. Solomon speaks of exactly this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He said there, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on the works of my hands, and done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, it was all vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Verse 2 continues, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. The Bible now further defines the residency of the family. They lived in Judah. They lived in Bethlehem. But they are Ephrathites as well. Ephrath is the same place which is mentioned in, for example, Genesis 35 is the burial place for Rachel. The name Ephrath, as we have seen in several previous Genesis sermons, means both ash heap and place of fruitfulness. And it's not surprising that both of these fit perfectly into the story. The land meaning place of fruitfulness is no longer fruitful, which shows the greatness of the famine which is around them. And so in order to stay alive, they have decided to leave to find another dwelling place to replace where they are. And in their leaving, it is a place of ashes or mourning, which is what ashes symbolize because of the move that they must make away from the promised land. Many find his actions as disobedience to the Lord, but the story does not indicate this. The fact is that there that a famine exists shows that Israel as a whole is in a state of disobedience. Elimelech is actually separating himself and his family from those sad surroundings. There are numerous examples of people leaving the land of promise during famines, and disobedience for this happening is not considered the case. A classic example of this is found in the book of 2 Kings. Let me read you this. 
Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. Now when she returned, her land and all of the proceeds from her land were restored. When someone is exiled from the land forcefully, it is certainly because of God's curse. But when a voluntary move happens, no, dis- no such deduction can be made on an individual level. Verse 2 continues, And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. And so with the intent of merely being pilgrims and not permanent residents in a foreign land, they go to Moab. As I said, many scholars find fault in them for uh, lacking faith in the providence and promises of God by moving to there. But there are no promises and providences of God at the time. The land is barren. Normally, when somebody moves from one land to another in the Bible, it implies changing one's God when when that move is made. However, nothing in the story implies this and no indictments are made. The famine is directed by God. The events are being used by God, and God's plans will be realized through what has happened. Later in the same chapter, Naomi's words are actually going to reflect that they had remained obedient to the Lord even during their time in Moab. All that we have seen so far and all that occurs takes place without the Bible negatively commenting on the actions of Elimelech and his family. What then shall we say to these things? What is it that our joy and gladness brings? If God is for us, who can be against us? This God upon whom we call, he who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This is that which certainly our joy and gladness brings. Our second thought today, life in a foreign land, verses three through five. Now in this sad section, there's going to be death, two marriages, and two more deaths. And if you can't see God's hand, his sovereign hand, all over the five verses that we're looking at today, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, he created us, he directs us, and then he uses our movements, I'm talking about the people in the story, for his purposes and to show us pictures of other things. He gave them life, and it is his choice to take life. And as I said, he does this by his own will. So, when we look at stories like this and we, you know, it, we apply them to our life, we can say, well, why did God let my husband die or, you know, something like that? God is God. We are man and we just have to accept that he's in control. That doesn't mean that we can't mourn and grieve and be sorrowful. Those are natural things. But we should never call God to account and say, God, you have done wrong by this. We are his workmanship, just as Jeremiah says about the potter and the clay. You know, God can take the clay, the potter can take the clay and make anything he wants, and he can destroy the pot anytime he wants. And the Bible says that we are vessels of clay, and he can use us as he so chooses. So remember God's sovereignty as we're looking through these verses and through this story, because at the end, his covenant people receive a very, very good end, okay? And that's what we need to keep remembering as we look through it in our lives as well. Verse 3, then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. No mention is made concerning how long they lived in Moab, but at some point, God, in order to continue the narrative in the manner which he alone is the decider of, he ended the life of Elimelech in a foreign land in which he sojourned. Thus, the story must now take on a new biographical direction. I want to highlight this to you. Elimelech dies, and then the sons marry, and then the sons die. The order of what is occurring is important for us to understand what God is doing 
in redemptive history. Everything is pointing to something towards the end of this story, which pictures Christ and his work in our lives. Verse 3 continues, and she was left and her two sons. Naomi is the one to remain behind to lead the family through their sojourn, she with no husband and they with no father. There with her sons, they will wait for their own departure from Moab. Elimelech had simply gone in advance of them. And the Hebrew word used to describe them being left, which is Batisha Er, gives this thought. They remained, he simply departed in advance. Okay, verse four continues, or verse four. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. Again, as before, scholars treat this as a real offense and something that was forbidden for them to do. However, this is not the case at all. Nor does the story imply it, nor does it indict them in any way for this. In Deuteronomy chapter seven, the forbidden marriages are listed and they include the daughters of the people who lived in Canaan, the land. They are named individually, and there is nothing said about Moabites. Later in Deuteronomy 23, it is implied that marriage to a Moabite could occur, but with restrictions. There it says these words, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Now, if an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly even to the 10th generation, it then implies that marriage may occur to them, but with guidelines that are given for that instance. Further, this applied to the female who would marry a male but it did not apply to a male who is married to a female. Now, how do we know this? It's because the name travels through the father, not through the mother. None of those in the line of Ruth will be excluded from the assembly, even King David, who comes from Ruth, and he did enter the assembly. He was only the third generation from Ruth. In 1 Kings chapter 7, Solomon is noted for being disobedient for such a marriage. And there it says these words, which seem to contradict it. So I want to read it to you. But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not marry, intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. In this, the list includes the explicitly forbidden marriages to the Hittites. But the list doesn't mean that all included, as we saw a moment ago, are forbidden. And it is from an Ammonite wife that the next king of Israel, Solomon's son, a guy named Rehoboam, would come. He wasn't excluded from the assembly. Both Ruth and Rehoboam's Ammonite mother are ancestors of Jesus Christ. Verse 4 continues. The name of the one was Orpah. The name Orpah is a Moabite, not a Hebrew name. Hebrew word, which is close to it, is the word eref. So you can hear the similarity, eref and orpah. It means the back of the neck or the mane. Her name will find its meaning in her actions before this chapter is finished. Verse 4 continues, in the name of the other, Ruth. The name Ruth has one of two general meanings. It means either friend or companion or beauty or looker, such as in one that you would look at because of their beauty. It depends on the root word used to determine the end result. And because it is uncertain, it is probably a play on both words, companion and looker. And both of them are going to fit in the story ahead. Verse 4 continues, and they dwelt there about 10 years. The term here in Hebrew for dwelt literally means to sit. 
This is an idiom which is passed down even to our modern lingo where we say that our house is our seat of residence. It was about 10 years that they dwelt in Moab. No reason is given for the length of time, but it could be as simple as life just getting away from them. Without any regular communications with those in Israel, time crept by, and before they knew it, 10 years had passed. But because it says about 10 years, it is asking us to look at what the significance of the number 10 is in the Bible. The specific number is given in a general sense for a reason. According to E.W. Bollinger in his book, Number in Scripture, the number 10 signifies the perfection of divine order. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. God has a plan. The plan is being executed, and there is a completion to that plan. In the case of the story of Naomi and Ruth, the time for the completion of that plan to be realized and for them to enter a new cycle of life would now come. Verse 5, then both Malone and Kilion also died. In approximately 10 years of living, no more than a few verses are given to show the life events of the family of Elimelech. In them are contained death, followed by marriage, followed by death. Only the details which are pertinent to the story are given, and only the details which point us to God's work in redemptive history are pertinent. As with the Father and as with all of us, the lives of Malone and Kilion were in the hands and at the will of God. It is during this time of spiritual lethargy that the sons marry, and it is during this time that no children are born. God has directed the events of their lives for a greater purpose, a purpose which they can't see, but which is all the time leading us to bring us to Jesus. It has been speculated that the two sons died because they married Moabite women. In essence, it is judgment on disobedience for following after the gods of Moab. It is also speculated that no children were born to the women during their marriages as punishment to their husbands. Now, there are several reasons to know that these are both incorrect assumptions. All right? The first is when God judges this way, it is stated. We see an example of it, for example, in the death of Judah's son, Ur. It says here in Genesis 38, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Okay, so we have an explicit reference to what God is doing. Such judgment is noted as a lesson, and they are noted often, but no such hint is given in the deaths of Malone and Kilion. Secondly, Naomi's words to her daughters later in this chapter to return to their gods implies that they had married into a family who had been following the Lord. Thirdly, Ruth will, in the coming chapters, marry a man named Boaz. If God were to have killed these sons for disobedience, then the same would be seen in Boaz for him doing so. But this is completely contrary to the entire message of the book of Ruth. That assumption is wrong. Fourth, the women not bearing children cannot be seen as any type of punishment. God withheld children from Sarah, from Rebecca, from Rachel, and from Tamar, among, among others later in the pages of the Bible in order to meet his goals. Finally, Ruth will have a baby to Boaz who is an Israelite, just coming in a few pages ahead. And so punishment for having married her is an entirely wrong view. All such assumptions that God was somehow displeased with these actions are incorrect, okay? Verse 5 finishes with these words. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. From God's perspective, life was being direct, directed with purpose and with care, even Naomi's life. But from her perspective, not seeing all that he sees and not understanding everything that is in his plan, there was only loss and sorrow and certainly confusion. 
Again, as before, the Hebrew uses the term Vatisha heir to indicate that she is left while now her husband and both of her sons have gone on before her. Their journey is taken while she remains. One scholar, a guy named Fuller, gives these heartfelt, heartfelt words concerning Naomi's plight. Listen to how he puts this. Of the two sexes, the woman is the weaker. Of women, the old women are most feeble. Of old women, widows are the most woeful. Of widows, those that are poor, their plight most pitiful. Of poor widows, those who want children, want children, in other words, are lacking children, their case is most doleful. Of widows that want children, those that once had them and after lost them, their estate is most desolate. Of widows that have had children, those that are strangers in a foreign country, their condition most comfortless. Yet all these met together in Naomi, as in the center of sorrow, to make the measure of her misery, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. I conclude, therefore, many men have had affliction, none like Job. Many women have had tribulation, none like Naomi. The beginning of the book of Ruth actually resembles a Greek tragedy. It seems as if nothing could go right for this woman, Naomi. Surely the pleasantness of the Lord does not describe her situation at all. She is in a rut that seems hopeless and beyond her ability to bear. But the Bible says that God is attentive to the widow. And with three of them living together, there is three times the attentiveness to that home where they dwell. Certainly good things are in store for those who have mourned their dead. And good things are in store for those of us who belong to him as well when we mourn. But there is the truth that we must belong to him in order to receive his favor and his hand of grace. It would be illogical to assume that God would care for those who don't first reach out to him. When tragedy happens, people ask, why did God let this happen to me? They say this as if God owes them something. But isn't it we, isn't it we that owe God? Didn't he give us this life, the time that we live in and the place where we are? Every good thing that we have came from him. And yet we often don't take the time to thank him for any of it. And above all, what did he do? He gave us his greatest gift of all. He gave us his son, Jesus Christ. If we don't accept that gift, then why would we expect any of his rights as his child? And so this is what God would ask of us, to call on him, to receive his offering of peace and to become his child through adoption. And this can only happen if we receive Jesus Christ as our savior. After that, even trouble and sadness begins to make sense. It doesn't feel any less sad or any less troubling, but at least it makes some sense. There are no longer hindrances to our relationship with him. Instead, they are steps that we just have to take in order to come to that place where his greatest blessings can be bestowed. Every step, every step, every step leading to the perfect fulfillment of his plans for us. If you've never taken that first step, the one of calling out for Jesus Christ, let me explain to you why this is necessary and how you can do it even right now. The Bible says that we are separate from God. We had a, a young man attending our Bible study earlier. He had to leave before the service today, but I asked, do you know what the main purpose of Jesus Christ coming? Because Jesus gave lots of purposes. I've come to give them life and more abundantly, and I've come to do this, and I've come to do that. What is the main purpose? And this young man said, the words which show the defining reason of Jesus Christ's advent, to destroy the works of the devil. 
That's the entire premise of the Bible from the very beginning, since the devil got his feet in there and he has caused us to sin. And that sin has remained in man ever since Adam. Every human being ever born, ever conceived, has inherited Adam's sin. And they are separate from God because of that. But God did something in Jesus Christ to rectify that. He sent his son, who lived the law that we cannot live. And then he gave his life up in exchange for our unrighteousness. Our sin is tacked to the cross of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness hanging there bleeding and dying is imputed to us so that we are seen as pure and spotless before God, not because of our own works, but because of what Christ did for us. And then to prove that we are cleansed of that sin, he came out of the grave. The sin is gone and the life is eternal. And that is the promise of God in Jesus Christ if we will simply reach out and accept it. I can't save myself. I want Jesus to save me. I want you as my Savior, and God will save you. And then you will get something called a gift, the Holy Spirit. You will be sealed, and it is for all eternity. God doesn't make mistakes, and so if he seals you, it's a done deal. He doesn't say, okay, you're saved, and now you're unsaved. You're saved despite yourself. That's the greatness of the God that we serve. So if you've never taken that time to call on Jesus Christ and to have your sin pinned to that cross and his righteousness covering you, do so today, all right? I have a closing verse today from the 144th Psalm. See if you can fit it in with what we talked about today. Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath. Think of Elimelech and Malone and Kilion. His days are like a passing shadow. Unbelievable. Next week is Ruth 1, 6 through 14. Another short series of verses. It's called Bread in the Land of Promise. Man, does that sound good. All right, that's our second Ruth sermon. I have something to tell you before I read you our poem. I've amended this for the uh, book of Ruth, and I hope that you'll listen and take it to heart. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. He knows your trials, troubles, and woes, and he is with you there through them. So cling to him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Our poem today is called a famine in the land. Now it came to pass, as we understand, in the days when ruled the judges, that there was a famine in the land which brought about difficulties, toils, and trudges. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, to dwell in the country of Moab, went, he and his wife and his two sons, until the time of the famine was spent. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi. Then the names of his two sons were Malone and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, their place of residency. And to the country of Moab they went and remained there in a new emplacement. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons, a husband and a father, they were denied. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. Orpah was the name of the one, and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years under Moab's son. Then both Malone and Kilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Surely at this time God's plans had her mystified. We too live in a world of troubles, trials, and woes, and often things occur which make us question God. We shake our heads and take the path where it goes, and each step can be a painful, heartbreaking trod. But at the end of the miserable, weary path, we find that God was there all along guiding us. We thought that we were the objects of his wrath, but instead we were being molded to be like Jesus. His ways are far above ours, so let us in him trust. Let us never let our faith fail as each day we live. He is tending to us, and all his ways are just. 
and so let us to him all of our praises give. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for opening us uh, to us this uh, first portion of the book of Ruth. And we look in anticipation of all the beauty that lies ahead with the, the glorious pictures of your son and what he has done in human history, including pictures which point to your people Israel and how they have suffered so greatly throughout the ages. But for them, there is restoration just as there is for us. And we thank you for that. We thank you that these promises are sure because they are in your word. The spirit will be brought back to them and that we will be translated to glory and we will be in your presence for all of eternity. What a wonderful, wonderful prospect that is. So we look forward to that and we thank you for it. And uh, I would ask that uh, you would just take care of each person here, their hearts and their, uh, their trials and troubles and just be with them through them in the week ahead. Help them to understand that they are being uh, happening in their life for a good reason, for a good end. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we exalt you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We get our instructions for the Lord's Supper directly from the book of 1 Corinthians. And I add in a few things, not trying to add to the Bible, but to let you know the blessings that the Lord would have said on the night before he was crucified. Other than that, we, these uh, instructions come from the Bible. And uh, there we read these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, then he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. He took it and broke it, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drinks, eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. you walk or do you want me to bring this to you? No, I can help. Okay, please come forward. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's good. The body and the blood. Jesus Christ. Can you join us, guys? 
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, once again, we want to thank you for the wonderful provision you've given us in our life. You've fed us each day and given us drink in order to sustain us. And uh, all of that is pictured in your beautiful book of Ruth, the house of bread, the gleaning of the fields, the harvest. All of it is so wonderful that we've been following this pattern for thousands of years, cultivating what you have given us and hopefully thanking you in the process. But we do thank you for the greatest harvest of all, which is the harvest of men procured from among the people of the world to be a holy temple to you. We thank you for that. We thank you for the opportunity to be a part of that temple. We love you and we praise you, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.